Winston Churchill became Prime Minister on May the 10th, 1940. Three days later, he spoke to his cabinet about the task ahead of them as Britain faced the war with Nazi Germany. Churchill stood in front of that cabinet and he said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Churchill was not a defeatist. He was not an Eeyore who could only see the negatives in life. He was simply being realistic about what the next few years would involve. But when he called people to blood, toil, tears, and sweat, he did it in the hope of something better and brighter on the other side of that struggle. And as we turn this morning to the book of Deuteronomy again, we're going to hear Moses giving his equivalent of the blood and toil speech. And like Churchill, Moses was not an Eeyore. He wanted God's people to be prepared to deal with reality. And Moses also, even in a greater way than Churchill did, he knew the great rewards on the other side of the tears and sweat. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses speaks to the Israelites and he asks them, are you ready for the battle and beyond? So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 198 or in the larger print Bibles, 303. Deuteronomy 20 and we'll read this whole chapter. Moses says to the Israelites as they are on the banks of the Jordan River ready to cross over into the land of Canaan, he says in verse 1, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. The officers shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. 
If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. This is God's word. This part of God's word is about war, but it does not glorify war. It deals with the reality that war is an inevitable part of life. That was the case in the ancient world, and it is today in our world. But this chapter is addressed specifically to God's people. And as we've looked at earlier parts of this book, we've seen that God's people today are not involved in the same kind of warfare as the ancient Israelites. But the language of warfare does not disappear in the New Testament. The church of Jesus Christ is not called to take up literal swords or guns. The New Testament tells us that our warfare is against sin in our own hearts. And it's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we have to be realistic. Our warfare is spiritual, yes, but it still calls for blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But that may raise a question for us. What about God's blessing? Can't we expect good things as God's people? The answer is yes, of course. The ordinary life of God's people involves both blessing and War. That's the message of the Bible. We can see it here in verses 1 to 9 as Moses prepares the Israelites for what's ahead of them. He starts with war and then shows there will be blessing along with war. And as Moses prepares the people for war, he wants them to know the war is often going to seem impossible, it's going to seem unwinnable. In verse 1 he says, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours. Chariots were the ancient equivalent of tanks. 
And the truth was, Israel's enemies had them, and Israel didn't. So most times that Israel prepared for battle, they would be facing an army that was better equipped, much better equipped, and most times the enemy would also outnumber Israel. The war would often seem unwinnable. And isn't it the same today? When you follow the news, you see the way our society is, with its increasing hostility to what God's word says is good. And when you and I see how much sin there still is in our own hearts, and how much there is to be anxious and fearful about in the wider world, when you consider all those things, do you feel confident of success in this war we face as God's people? The battles we face to stay faithful to our Savior, to resist temptation, to put sin to death in our hearts, to overcome our many fears, not to mention our spiritual laziness and apathy. Doesn't the enemy seem greater than us? Better equipped? In that sense, Nothing changes when it comes to the battles that God's people face. But the good news is, nothing changes when it comes to our God either. Yes, we're to be realistic about the power of the enemy and our own weakness. But let's be realistic too about the power of our God. Look again at the first four verses of our passage. Moses says, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, here, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. Yes, we have a fight on our hands. We can't duck out of it. Notice notice how Moses says, when you go to war, verse 1, and you're going into battle, verse 3, God's involvement doesn't take you and me out of the war. The promise is that as we go to war, he will be with us and give us victory. Too often, God's people have assumed we have no part to play in this. That God will just clear our enemies off the battlefield. That he'll remove temptation from our lives and disinfect our hearts of all those sinful desires. And remove the stuff we're afraid of. So that we have no fighting to do. And then when those same Christians have found themselves giving in to temptation and sinful desires and fear. They've blamed God for not doing what he promised. But he never did promise us a battle free life. He has promised to be with us. And to give us victory as we fight. So yes, we fight with great confidence, knowing God is greater than our enemies, that he will help us move forward in spite of our fears, 
that he will help us resist temptation and put sin to death. But let's recognize, too, we are called to put sweat and toil into the fight. Doing the hard work of facing down our fears, turning our back on sin, denying ourselves things that part of us would really like to be involved in. Reminding ourselves again and again that sin might taste sweet for a while, but it's poison in the end. It might help us fit in with certain people, but it separates us from the one person who matters most, the Lord who loves us best. We have a fight on our hands. But by this stage, you might be feeling a bit impatient with where we're going here. Wasn't there supposed to be something in this about blessing? I haven't noticed that bit yet. So far, it sounded like nothing but hard work. Well, look what comes next in verse 5. The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home. Or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. These are sometimes referred to as exemptions from battle. But actually they're about respite from battle. We'll come back to that. But first, let's understand the point of these verses. God has promised blessing to his people. And not all of that blessing comes at the end. As broken as this world is, it is still our Father's world. And there are blessings to be enjoyed here and now in our Father's world. And these verses we just read mention the blessings of home, harvest, and family. And the harvest here is not just the basics. It's not just corn for making bread. This is a harvest of grapes for making wine. And although there's a war in front of the people, these verses make provisions for the Israelites to enjoy good things. The Bible says a house and good food and drink and marriage are legitimate things to be enjoyed along with plenty of other things. And the people here will have opportunity to enjoy them. Sometimes as God's people, we've made the mistake of undervaluing the good things in God's world. At times in the history of the church, it was almost presented as a sin to delight in down-to-earth things. But the Bible doesn't see it that way. Here, it takes the view that the war we face shouldn't stop us enjoying good things. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. That it's okay to relax and appreciate the blessings to be experienced in this world. But I suspect that most of us don't really struggle with that particular issue. I suspect when it comes to the good things of this world, most of us struggle to accept that those good things are a respite from war. 
rather than exemption from war. What I mean is, a lot of our frustration comes from believing that the life of a Christian should consist mostly of blessing and enjoyment, and very little blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And so when we discover that the good things tend to be pleasant pauses in the middle of a lifelong war, we start getting disillusioned with the Christian life because it's not what we expected. But if we pay attention to the Bible, we will not be surprised when blessings are a respite from war rather than an exemption. Here in our passage, Israel is about to move into the promised land. It's going to be a new place for all of them. And so, if everyone who built a new house got a permanent exemption from war, there'd never be any Israelite army at all. And there to be a nation of farmers in this new land. So if everyone who planted a vineyard got a permanent exemption, or everyone who got married, the war would never be fought. Never mind one. But in fact, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy clarifies that the exemption for a newly married man was one year. And we can assume something similar for a new homeowner. In the case of the vineyard owner, apparently it took five years before a vineyard began to bear fruit. So maybe they had a longer respite from battle. But the point is, whether the respite was longer or shorter, there were no permanent exemptions. Back in verse 3, the message was, here, Israel. Not just those of you who don't have a new home or a vineyard and aren't married. Here, Israel. You're going into war against your enemies. This war is for all God's people, no exceptions. So there are delightful blessings to be enjoyed, but we must not expect them to be our only experience. We must expect periods of battle too. All the way through our lives, times of blood, toil, tears, and sweat. As we feel the heat of the enemy's attack, or the burden of our own sinfulness, or the reality of our fear and anxiety and weakness. C.S. Lewis touched on this in his book, The Problem of Pain. And in this quotation, he refers to the Christian life as a journey rather than a battle. But the point he makes fits what we're talking about here. Lewis says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. As examples of pleasant ends, from his own thinking, Lewis lists a few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bathe, maybe that was an event for him, or a football match. And we could add our own examples. There are so many wonderful things in life. 
And we are to enjoy them as good gifts from our Father in heaven. But as Lewis points out, we mustn't forget we're not home yet. There's still a war to be fought. When good things come, we're to enjoy the respite and give thanks to God, yes. And we're also to expect that the war will go on. So maybe as you listen to this, you realize you need to change your expectations for the Christian life. It is not, come to Jesus and all your struggles will be over. It's come to Jesus and he will be with you in your struggles. He will lead you to victory in the end. And along the way, he will refresh you with good gifts and blessings. If we don't have that expectation, we will become faint-hearted and we will quit. We're called to faith. Faith not in the God who exempts us from battle, but in the God who is with us in the battle. You can see that here in verse 8. And then the officer shall add, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. We already know from verses 1 to 4, fear is a possibility for all the Israelites. The people being sent home here are those who simply do not believe the Lord can lead them to victory. This is not a weak faith we're talking about in verse 8. It's a lack of faith altogether. And the way that translates into our situation is that those who have not put their faith in the Lord are non-starters in this battle we're talking about. You cannot defeat sin in your heart. You cannot resist temptation if all that you have to draw on is your own strength and resolve. You are not ready for the battle until you've recognized your helplessness. Your slavery to sin, and then trusted in Jesus as your only hope. Then and only then, you're ready for the battle. The ordinary life of God's people involves both blessing and war. And here, as Moses prepares Israel for war, he mentions two kinds of warfare. Defensive and offensive. The second of these, offensive warfare, is familiar to us already from earlier in the book. In verses 16 and 18, Moses speaks about the war of conquest, when Israel will go on the offensive. The land God is giving to Israel is already occupied, of course. Verse 17 mentions the various peoples who are living in Canaan at this time. And it's important to remember, the destruction of those people is not a case of God saying, well, I want Israel to have this land, so it's just tough on the Canaanites. They have to be destroyed to make way. It's not like that at all. As early as the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God told Abraham he was going to destroy these peoples because of their sin. God knew about them already way back then. That promise came in Genesis chapter 15. 
But for centuries after he promised to destroy these people, God held back. Generation after generation. In his patience, God left the Canaanites alone. But now, finally, the Israelites are going to be God's instrument to bring his judgment on the Canaanites. And God requires total destruction of the Canaanites. Because he knows if they are allowed to remain, their wickedness will be a cancer that infects Israel. That's explained in verse 18. If the Canaanites are allowed to remain, they will teach Israel to follow all the detestable things they do. Now, you and I may shift uneasily in our seats at the thoroughness of the judgment that's called for here. But let's remember, the judgment on the Canaanites is just a small foreshadowing of the judgment that will fall on the whole world when Jesus returns. Then all people who defy God's rule and reject his anointed king Jesus will face everlasting destruction. And so the fate of the Canaanites is not in Scripture just as a monument to something in the past, some past ugliness we can safely forget about. The order to destroy the Canaanites is in Scripture to warn us that an even more thorough judgment is coming. And we need to bow before Jesus the King now, today, and be saved before he returns in judgment and it's too late to be saved. Now, as it happens back in the Old Testament, Israel did not carry out this command. They started, but they didn't finish. And as a result, they did become infected with the sin of the Canaanites. They did learn and follow the Canaanites' detestable ways. But we also need to see, even if Israel had carried this out, it was not intended to be an ongoing military policy. It was a unique policy for a strictly limited situation. Once they had delivered God's judgment on the Canaanites, the Israelites were not to carry on with the policy of total destruction. And that's made clear here in verses 10 to 15. These verses set out what we could call Israel's normal policy of war. They're not to attack and dispossess other nations as well as the Canaanites. Verse 15 says, cities that are at a distance from Israel are to be treated differently. That's referring to nations outside of the promised land. And we saw this earlier in the book. Chapter 2 recorded how as Israel was marching to where they are now, as they came into the territory of nations outside Canaan, God said to them over and over again, don't provoke those people to war. I have not given you their land. Don't harass those people. Their land is not for you. And what that means is Israel's general policy of war was to only engage in what today we would call wars of national security. Wars that become necessary because another nation attacked Israel. 
So instead of indefinitely seeking to expand their territory, Israel was to leave other nations alone unless another nation attacked first. In those circumstances, the Israelites could take the war to their enemy in order to protect themselves. There's an early example of that in the book of Judges. The Midianites come to ravage Israel, we're told. They descend on the place. And God raises up Gideon to fight Midian off and pursue them until they're no longer a threat. Those kinds of war were to be conducted largely according to the rules of warfare at that time. What we read in verses 10 to 15 was typical of war at that time. Except God calls his people to greater restraint than was normal at the time. For example, often captured women would be raped. But God calls the Israelites to treat treat captive women with respect. There's more about that in chapter 21. And so elsewhere in the Old Testament, we find the Israelites actually had a reputation for treating their enemies with mercy in war. The other nations noticed the difference. So when you and I read through the Old Testament, it's important to keep in mind wars of total destruction were not the general expectation for Israel. Wars of national security were the general expectation. The kind of war described in verses 10 to 15. And we already know neither kind of war applies to God's people today. Israel was a nation, they had national borders to protect, and for a time, Israel had a unique role as God's instrument of judgment. Neither of those apply to the church. We're not a nation, and God hasn't given us his sword of judgment. But as Christians, as we've seen, we do have battles to fight. And now we can add to what we said earlier And say that we too are called to both defensive and offensive warfare. In terms of defense, the New Testament book of Ephesians calls us to take our stand against the devil's schemes. James and 1 Peter both call us to resist the devil, standing firm in the faith. When we're tempted, we have to see that temptation as the Bible sees it as a call to defensive warfare. The enemy is bringing the fight to us and we need to take our stand against him and all of his schemes to defeat us. That applies when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness and power and give in to fear. It applies when we're tempted to all sorts of unholy words and behavior spreading rumors about others, telling lies to impress others, whatever it is you specifically are tempted to do. Sometimes we surrender to those temptations as if no one has ever told us we can fight against them. God has promised we can fight and we can win. And we must. And when it comes to offensive warfare us taking the initiative, we read earlier the New Testament book of Colossians, which calls us to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. When it comes to sin in our hearts, we're not to tolerate it. We are to adopt a policy of total destruction. That is the work of a lifetime, of course. The battle will not be won until we see Jesus. But we have to fight the battle. We dare not be ruled by our sinful desires. So the ordinary life of God's people involves both blessing and war, and we are called to both defensive and offensive warfare. But for our encouragement and for our sanity, we also need to look beyond warfare. As God's people, we have this wonderful assurance. Although warfare will last a lifetime for us, it will not last forever. Here in our passage, the final verses seem odd when we first read them. Have a look at them again. Verse 19 says, When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. This instruction on warfare ends with two verses about trees. Of all the stuff that could be said about warfare, is it really that crucial to hear that fruit trees are to be left alone? When so much other detail has not been given to us, what is so important about this detail? It is important because it encourages Israel to look forward to a time beyond warfare. A time when they will be at peace. And they will be able to enjoy the fruit of all those trees they have left standing. Yes, they have battles to fight, but they need to keep one eye on life beyond those battles. The fruit trees will be there when the war is over. In fact, as we read on in the Old Testament, this develops into a standard image of peace and prosperity. We find this phrase about everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. No one coming to ravage the land anymore and steal away those blessings. It is a picture and a hope that keeps coming up. And if we stop to think about it and widen out the horizon for a bit, we might remember that the Bible actually begins and ends with a tree. In the beginning, the Garden of Eden contained the tree of life, which Adam and Eve were barred from because of their sin. And at the end of the Bible, after the book of Revelation has described a great and bloody final battle, where God the Son comes to destroy his enemies and lead his people to victory, after that final end to war, the Apostle John has given a vision of the future of God's people beyond warfare. They're gathered in a great city 
with God at the center. And John says, Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. John goes on to say more about the blessings and the peace of that city. A city where God is with his people, where all enemies have been cast out forever, where all brokenness and pain are finally and fully healed, a place where God and his people reign. This life is full of battles, but as we fight, we have one eye on a very different future. A future where warfare has given way to healing and wholeness, where blessing from God's hand is not just a temporary respite and refreshment. We're heading to a future where blessing is unhindered and undiluted and uninterrupted. So this week, let's take the war seriously. And let's take great encouragement from the fact that for God's people, the war is ultimately temporary. But the blessing is eternal and expanding. One day the war will be over, but God will never stop calling us further up and further into his blessings. That is our great hope as God's people. It is God's promise to us as his people. And our last two songs reflect on these things, both the war now and the blessing to come. So let's respond to God's word as we sing, O church, arise, a call to battle, and then there is a day, a glimpse of the future beyond the battle. Let's sing these together. <clears throat>